This is our 18th week in the book of James. Um, it doesn't seem like that. It, it seems like it's been way faster than that, especially in this book of the Bible, that is intensely practical. Um, this is, if this book of the Bible has been honing in on your heart, just, just kind of give it one of these. Give it one of these. Okay, it, I mean, it gets right into our hearts. And so lately what it's been doing is it's, it's been exposing um, an area of pride that we rarely think about. And that area of pride being the way that we use our tongue. We usually don't think of pride in that way, do we? We usually think of pride as boisterous and bold and there's this, you know, whatever it is. We usually don't think about pride just in the way that we, we speak. And so he's been honing in on that, the way that we use our mouth. And I guess I could say it this way, simply put, what he's been doing is calling us to all areas of humility in our lives, for us to be humble people. This is not foreign to Scripture, right? Pop it up on the screen. This is a linear theme that goes all the way through Scripture. Jesus, Matthew, and Luke. Uh, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Um, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, he who humbles himself will be exalted. So you see this theme of Christ calling us to be marked as a people of Humility. Philippians does the same thing. Have this mind among yourselves. Have this mind. Be like Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, being made in the likeness of man. So this call to humility. And then First Peter continues that thing. Theme, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. So be humble, be humble, be humble, be humble, be humble, be humble. All the way through Scripture, and rarely do we go, am I humble in my speech? So we think of humility as just kind of being meek or being calm or being whatever. And, and so James really calls us to this point. And so today he's really going to zero in and land on this matter. I guess I could say it this way. Through James chapter 4, he's been saying, Watch the passions that rise up within you, like a bee looks at a flower and then goes to the other side. Watch the way that you handle conflict. And then a bee goes to the other side, watch the way that you tame your tongue, and then he goes to the other side. And today, he lands right on that bad boy, and he says, don't be a fault finder. Being a person who is marked as a fault finder, if that's you, then you'll find yourself doing all these other things. And so he calls us to this. And so today, we're going to look at this, but let me go ahead and, before we say it out loud, let me give you some practical examples. Have you said this or have you heard this? So maybe it'll be easier just to go, maybe I've heard it, but maybe I've not said it. All right? So we'd pawn it off on somebody else. Does this sound familiar? Well, I don't like the way he does this. I don't like the way she does that. Or maybe this. She's only focused on herself. Or this, well, he's only focused on applause. Or maybe this, he will do anything for that promotion. Or this, she'll do anything to be liked by other people. Have you heard that? Or maybe have you said that? Right? So this is what it looks like. And so what James is going to do today is he's going to land right on that and he's going to just kind of sit us in it. Right? So we usually, because the passages kind of can get long sometimes, 
We've not been able to read the scripture aloud together, but it's only two verses today. So let's read this passage of scripture aloud together. So let's stand in honor of God's word one more time. Up and down day. Up and down day. I promise we we didn't turn Catholic. Um, Up and down day. Here we go. So this is the passage that we have today before us. And I promise you, this is two verses, but it is packed. Right? So here we go. Let's read this aloud together. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Happy Ladies' Day. Be seated. (laughs) So let's dive into this real fast. And and so he's given us this instruction. So if you're a note taker, it's just going to be three things. Instructions and then reasons why to follow the instruction. The instruction is very simple right at the beginning. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Here's a problem with this, though. The word evil is not actually in the text. And we wish it was in the text. Because it's easy for us to read a passage that says, do not speak evil, and for us justify away our talking about somebody, and we go, well, I'm not speaking evil of them. And so that word can be misguided if we're not careful. And so that word is not there, literally in the Greek text. What it says is just this, do not speak against one another. And that's a whole other level right there. Because then it calls into question our motives behind whether we speak anything, whether it be evil or whether it be, watch this, or whether it be truth. He's calling us into question in the way that we handle our speech and this, particularly this fault-findingness. And so again, we would rather evil be there because we like to justify what we're saying about someone or something. And James will have none of it. James debunks the myth that most believe, and this is the myth. It's okay to convey negative information about somebody so long as it is true. Then it's okay. And James calls that into question. And so we say things like this. Well, it's, it's, it's not a lie. I'm telling you this for their good. Right? That's how we spin it. We're spin masters. Or we'll even go to this next level of, I need to tell you this because it's really my responsibility to be the bearer of truth. I need to tell you this. And then it comes out as gossip. And James calls into question, and what James is saying is, is the conversation you're having gauged by evil or not? Or is the conversation you're having gauged by, is it damaging or not? And that's two whole different things. And so, literally, do not speak against. And so, in other words, James is saying, what you're saying may be true, but if it's of a cynic spirit, I'm going to raise the bar and ask the intent behind why you're even saying it in the first place. That's what he's getting at. And so there's three things, I'll throw them up on the screen, that I think we should consider when we're thinking about the way that we talk about other people or situations. Number one is this, content. What's the content behind the conversation that you're having? Is it meant to belittle somebody else's character? If the intent is, the content is to belittle, then it's fault finding. 
Or the flip opposite of that is just as true. Is it not to boast against them, but to boast in you? So you say something about somebody else to make yourself look better. So it's not really to tear them down. It's just to build you up. Well, that's still fault finding in a cynic spirit. Is it about shaming is what James is saying. Is the goal in your conversation to bring shame in some way, shape, form, or fashion to the other? If so, he's calling that into question. So content. And then number two about our conversations and our speaking about one another. What's the intent? Not just content, but what's the intent? What's the intent that you have in your conversation tomorrow at work? What's the intent behind your conversation today on the phone? And in the age of social media, what is the intent behind the little texting going on? What's the intent? What's the goal? Is it to manipulate a situation propped up as, ready for this, informational? You get that phone call, right? You've all, gosh almighty. Listen, I'm not pre. y'all know me. I'm not preaching at you. Right? I've had to chew through this passage for seven days. Good luck over the next seven as you chew through it, all right? That phone call that you get. Hey, man, I just heard this information, and I felt like you needed to know. And then you hear the conversation, and then you buy into it because you just need to know. And then when you pull back and look at it, it's nothing but belittling somebody else to manipulate. Like it serves no gospel good. But it's marked as information. You just need to know this. I don't want you to be caught off guard by this. You see the subtle nature that we do this in? So he calls into question the content and the intent. And then also, I would argue this, just delivery. Do we have a critical fault-finding spirit marked by delivery? Is your delivery of information characterized by harshness? You know, everything coming up is just it's angry, it's harsh. Or, I would also say be real careful if your conversation is not always by, marked by harshness, but I think we can find fault-finding just the same as when our conversation is smooth as silk and smooth as butter. You got to be real careful about that. Here's what that looks like. Hey, man, I love you. I'm for you. I think, man, I think, you, golly, you're the best person in the world. And you, you, know, you know that I'm for you. Let me tell you this one thing. It's so good, and it's cultivating that soil of, of, of I'm here to listen to you, and all of a sudden there's just that, but let me plant this one little diseased thought. It's smooth. And then that little disease thought, that disease thought does what? You leave that conversation that was so smooth, and it starts rotting away. And it starts growing. And then weeds start growing. And then you start thinking about that person that they brought up, or that situation that they brought up, or that job that they brought up, or whatever it is. And it starts growing, and it starts festering. got to be careful. So James says, do not speak against one another. That's clear. I don't know why I've read this passage a million times and cluttered it with so much justification. Like that's, that's really clear, right? And so as humans, plain and simple, here's the deal, and then we'll move on. 
if you find yourself with a cynical and critical attitude, he's talking about you. Because what we love to do with a passage like this is we love to read it and then come up with a list of ten people that need to hear it. Don't we? We go, do not speak against one another. Hush, there's 25 people right now that needs to hear this. They need to hear it. And so we gloss right over it, and he's, he's calling our hearts into question. What's the heart behind what we do or what we say? And this is a fantastic quote. I think it was by Mr. Kent Hughes. I'll, I'll give him credit. He, it might not have been his. Um, sometimes study and everything clutters together, and then you forget to write down who actually said it. So we're going to give this quote credit to Kent Hughes, but it's a powerful truth for Christians. Look at this. What James is saying is this. Truth is not a license that gives Christians the right to righteously diminish other people's reputations. And we like to go, well, it's true, so it needs to be said. And what James says, if it's true, sometimes you just need to shut your pie hole and eat it. Be careful. What's your motive behind what you're about to say? And then he gives two reasons why. Reasons why we shouldn't, and I would, the, the two reasons he give. So, so like if I came up to you right now and I said, hey, give me some reasons why we shouldn't talk about other people. Here's answers that you would give me. You would give me answers like I would give you. Well, because it might hurt their feelings, because it might make them look bad, because it might make me look arrogant or pompous, because it, and we'll focus on that. And James takes it to a whole nother level. So let's watch what he says. Don't speak evil against one another. Why? Reason number one, because you're exalting yourself above the law of God. Like that's a whole nother level. The one who speaks against a brother or judge, judges his brother, speaks evil not against his brother, but against what? The law. You speak evil against the law and becomes a judge to the law. So what law? What specific law? Well, we've already been over this in James chapter 2. James says there's one royal law that all other laws are subservient to. And that one royal law is to love your neighbor as yourself. The one law that all of them are subservient to is this issue of neighbor love. And so, in other words, here's what James is saying. When you speak evil against your neighbor, you are violating the law of neighbor love, which is the royal law. Maybe I can say it another way. To speak against your neighbor, you're not loving your neighbor, therefore you're choosing actively to sin. This is the consequence of fault-finding. Are you marked by this fault-finding spirit? And, and here's how this plays itself out. When we do this, when we speak evil against our neighbor to tear down or build ourselves up, whatever the motivation is, when we do this, we place ourselves above the law. Here's how we say that. Well, I can talk about that person because that royal law is for everybody else and not me. That's right, church. You go love your neighbor as yourself. And I am going to go love myself as myself. It's for you. So we place ourselves above the law as if we don't need the law or if we don't need to submit to the law, is what James is saying. Or when we do this, we just absolve the law altogether. 
We say, I'm going to talk about this person or talk about this situation or talk about this. I'm going to spin it however I want to. And in other words, what I'm doing is this. That royal law is unnecessary anyway. We should just do away with that law. Love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, who can really do that? Let's just get rid of it. Or, at worst, when we do this, our actions are just completely reprobate. It's that of a reprobate. It says this, I do understand that the royal law is to love my neighbor and not to be a fault finder, but here's what I do. I choose to set that law aside and I'm going to do what I dang well want to do. I'm just do what I want to do. So my actions are that of a reprobate. And so James calls this into question. And I wish I would have put this on the screen above. Just try to hang in with this. This is worth the price of admission right here. Um, this quote is, is phenomenal. And here's what the quote says. I found this as I was studying through this passage. When we allow human mind games to dupe us into believing that our motivation for being cynical is so that we're about the kingdom's good, we're exhibiting stupid arrogance of cosmic dimensions, placing ourselves at best on Mount Sinai with Moses and at worst above the law of God itself. So when we find ourselves as fault finder, nitpicking, he does this, she does this, my kids do that, my this, da 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 what this is calling us to is going, whoa, 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 did we write the law? Are we subservient to the law? Or are we placing ourselves over and above as Lord of the law? So I'll obey the law of neighbor love when it feels good for me to obey the law of neighbor love. But when I really want to just jab or stick or poke or whatever it is, even with the righteous indignation, when I want to do that, I don't resist it because James says, be careful, we're not worried about their feelings, we're placing ourselves above the law of God. It's pretty crazy, isn't it? It brings it to a whole other perspective. So reason number one, don't speak evil against your neighbor because you're placing yourself above the law. And then reason number two, you're placing yourself above the lawgiver. Read what he says. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a what? A judge. Now, how many of y'all have walked around thinking about conversations that you're having about someone else or about something else and going, I mean, how many of, you, how many of us are really in those conversations going, huh, I don't want to place myself above the law of God, and I certainly don't want to place myself above God himself. Like, that's the last thing in our minds, isn't it? That's exactly what he does. He says, when we do this, we're placing ourselves above the judge himself. So he does this in three ways. Look at it real fast. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. And he alone is the one who's able to save and destroy. So who are you to judge your neighbor? As the lawgiver, God alone is the one who has the right to reward and punish based on fault finding. Not us. What a passage, man. With this, James single-handedly crushes any right we have to sit in judgment over our neighbor. So, two questions. 
A thousand dollar question and a million dollar question. Not that I have either to give away, but just for kicks and giggles. The thousand dollar question is this. So, okay, Troy, if that's true, if that's right, is James saying that Christians shouldn't judge at all? I don't think that's what he's saying. But Troy, you just spent 30 minutes telling us not to judge. <laughs> so, so what on earth is going on? Okay, be careful. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus himself tells us to judge and see if somebody's a false prophet. So if you're looking around to see if some, what somebody's saying lines up with the text or not, how on earth do you know if it lines up with the text or not unless you're judging the content of said message? So he does call us to judge in some way, shape, form, or fashion. James later on is actually going to tell us to make right judgments based on people, not based on their appearance. So how on earth do we do that if we're not actively looking at the heart? And so again, the $1,000 question is, is James saying Christians don't, don't judge at all? That's, I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is, don't be marked by a judging that is that of a critical spirit that judges everyone and everything that you see. Don't be marked by that. Do you, do you see that in your own heart? Do you feel that in your own heart? Is James just shaving away calluses in you right now? Good. Good. So the million-dollar question. The thousand-dollar question was, so is James saying Christians don't judge at all? The million-dollar question, well, what about Alexander Shunara? <laughs> and his 50,000 billboards, all right? Can anybody judge anybody? So how do lawyers fit into this? So should lawyers, what does that work like? Okay, if your mind went there in this passage to go, that's right, tell them lawyers that they need to get another job. Like if that's where your brain went, then you completely justified this passage away. All right? He ain't talking about that. What James is doing, his point is way more personal. It's way more applicable. And it's way more honed in on us. And so, do you have a harsh spirit that continually finds fault with others? Do you have an unkind spirit that continually finds fault with others? Do you have a critical spirit that continually finds fault with others? If you answered yes to this, James is talking to you. And if we're honest, we probably can all raise our hands and go, he's talking to me. <laughs> and so if that is you, then whatever situation he's bringing that up in your brain, number one, I would say this, repent. Repent before God. Come in line with Scripture. Repent that you're attempting to usurp a role as fault finder that he alone can fill. He alone is the fault finder. Repent for bringing sin into an attempt at righteousness, for truth's sake. God alone knows every nuance, cook and, crook and cranny. Crook? Um, nook and cranny, I guess is the word I'm looking for. God alone knows every detail of somebody's heart. And even if we judge righteously... We're still imperfect people, so we're going to judge in some way, shape, form, or fashion unrighteously. So stop, is what he's saying. 
And so with that, number one, repent before God. Number two, realize why you're doing this. Why do you find yourself as a fault finder? I'll give, run through a couple of things that I thought of this week why I do this. I'll find myself as a fault finder when I feel violated. When I just don't like the way that a situation felt. Like it brought me angst. It brought me confusion. It brought me something. There was something I felt that I didn't like. Um, I felt slighted. I felt jealous. I felt righteous. I feel like they are the hypocrite. Whatever it is. And so I'm violated. And so when I'm violated, what do we do when we feel violated? We find fault in other people so that they'll what? Feel violated. <laughs> and so James calls this into question. Or you're a fault finder because you want to feel vindicated. You want to feel right. You ever notice that we love walking? We love walking on elevated platforms. Even if we're walking on the bruised heads of other people. And James says, if our goal is to crush people so that we can walk a little higher and feel a little better about ourselves, then we're a fault finder. And he calls that into question. Or... Do you find yourself a fault finder because you're at war worshiping someone or something? I'm a fault finder in that person because they belittled that person and I worship that person even though we would never say that, do we? We would go, I just like that person and if you make fun of that person, then I'm on you like white on rice. Right? And so we're at war because somebody went to war against someone or something that we like. And so we, ah, fall in fault. Or this. Do you find yourself as a fault finder just because your conversational skills are boring? What do I mean by that? You just don't know how to talk to other people. <laughs> and so you're sitting around a fire and you got the fire going, and you're sitting around hanging out, and you're having conversation, and all of a sudden, because your conversational skills are boring, you don't have anything else to talk about. So what do you do? What do you do? Start talking about somebody. What did you know this about that person? Did you know this about that person? Well, can you believe this person? Right? <laughs> right? I mean, you've already exhausted all of everything. We're sitting around the fire at my house, okay? And, and we, you know, this is the conversation. You've already burnt everything. You know what I'm talking about? The wood's burnt, and then you burn the Doritos bags, and then all of a sudden, Alf Doll goes in there. <laughs> uh, then you're, you're burning whatever. Everything's burnt. And you're sitting there, and all of a sudden you find yourself in a conversation talking about somebody who has nothing to do with the fire that you're sitting around. And so rather than our grow in our relational skills in conversation, we just talk about people. Stop, James says. Or are you just saturated with the cynical spirit? Like, is it just, is it just a sin issue that you really need to do battle with? Isn't it funny how, like, when you first become a Christian, it's like the big sins, right? right? Like growing up all my life, all I've heard is, you know, basically to be a good Christian, you don't drink, smoke, cuss, have sex before marriage. I think that was kind of the four biggies, right? That was the youth group stuff, right? Don't drink, smoke, have sex, you know, whatever. And, and, and so you're like, man, if, I, if, I'm a, <laughs> if I'm a real Christian, I'm really going to knock these out of the park, you know, whatever. 
Um, and then all of a sudden, as you grow in Christ-likeness, you realize that it's not four sins that you battle. It's like a billion sins. <laughs> and all of a sudden, James starts saying, are you a fault finder? And you're like, Lord, I'm still trying to work on this cussing thing. <laughs> right? <laughs> if I can just get the cussing thing done, then we'll work on fault finding. Right? Are you just marked by a cynical spirit? Conversation goes like this. You're in a conversation and a person comes up and you go, Hey, golly, you know, they're really smart. And then your response is this. Yeah, they are really smart, but you know, their parents are real strict. And they get a tutor for their kid. You shot little jabs. It's unnecessary. It's fault finding. Or this right here. Conversation comes up. Golly, man, you know that that kid... Um, at County High, but he is really athletic. Or Kentucky Ballpark. He's really athletic. Yeah, 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 but you know one day genetics will catch up and he'll be average like everybody else. <laughs> Am I lying? Or this. Golly, man, you know that kid is really musical. Yeah. Well, you know, their dad bought that $2,000 horn instead of the $200 horn. It's the horn. I heard this one literally this week sitting in my favorite restaurant, which I won't name, but you can name for me. Edgar's. There you go. There you go. Well, shout out to Edgar's. They should be giving me free something. This lady was talking about another lady that she had met, and here she said this about this other lady. She said... Hey, this lady is the most virtuous, and I wouldn't have come up with that word, so you know I didn't make this up. <laughs> right? She said, that lady is the most virtuous woman I know. Never met anybody so virtuous. And this is what her friend said. Yeah, but you know, I've seen her snap before, and she's human too. It'd be funny if it wasn't so true. And it's just those little jabs. It's unnecessary. It's fault-finding. And James says, stop. Don't be marked by that. So, three, maybe you need to repent with that person. And then four, maybe you need to draw a line in the sand between what once was and what will be. Draw a line in the sand today. If, if this is in your heart, you don't stand condemned at safe haven as we have the right to condemn anyone anyway. We just say, the scripture's calling us to draw a line in the sand and say, yes, and let's move forward and walk in the gospel truth. Well, the band's going to come back up. Um, I found this fascinating this week. <clears throat> um, this, this gentleman brought up this issue of a spider. Now, I know I just lost half of you when I said spider, right? <laughs> you started cringing. You started ticking. Um, we're not going to hand out spiders today. That'd be weird. So <clears throat> I found this, this, this spider, and it's a spider in Israel. And what it does is, is pretty cool. This spider will birth its babies, and um, what it does to provide for its babies is it'll build a web. We all know that. 
And so as a fly comes in and lands and gets tangled up, have you ever noticed that the spider doesn't go eat the fly? Have you ever noticed that? They, it doesn't eat it because it doesn't have a mouth big enough to, de to devour it. And so what it does is it catches it, spins it in the web, and then inside its stomach it has this mixture, this concoction, that's this acidic concoction. It stores it in different pouches, and it'll go up to the, the fly or whatever's caught, and it'll inject that inside of that bug. And then it'll go away. And then as it sits there, those um, things will sit inside that fly or whatever it is, and it'll literally rot that fly from the inside out. It'll break down everything that's inside of it. Gross, right? Think about this as you go eat your Olive Garden later today, <laughs> right? And, and so it'll walk over to it after that's happened, and it will then drink out the juices, the life-giving mixture, the life-giving soup that it's made out of this. It's pretty gross, right? All right, you're like, Troy, where are you going with this? All right, so, so here's the thing. Um, the babies will also go up, and it will drink out some of this, and that's what happens. This deadly concoction will go in and rot out this thing from the inside, leaving a corpse of what once was. And so there's this shell of a, which just sits on your spider webs right now that you haven't cleaned off of your back porch, right? Um, and so there sits this this fly that used to be, but it's dead. It's just a corpse of what once was. And so this is what James is saying. James is saying, be careful with your mouth that we're not just walking up, spitting into somebody, rotting them from the inside out, and leaving a shell of the man or woman that once was. Be careful. Our language is just as poisonous if we're not careful. Now, there's another cool thing about this spider. Another cool thing about this spider is this. It's found in Israel of all places. There's a spider there that will do this for its babies like other spiders will. But this spider in Israel is unique because here's what it'll do. Times of famine come often in Israel. And so when there's a time where its web is empty and there are no flies being caught, this spider, as a mother will take those juices and open up a valve inside her own body and allow these juices to go down inside herself. And it will begin to eat away at her own internal organs. The last organ to go is the heart. And in times of great famine and need, she will literally let these juices go down and eat herself to pieces to where her children can come feed and get life off of her. And I cannot think of a more beautiful picture of the gospel. We're prone to bite. We're prone to sting. And Jesus said, this is going to separate them. Their fault-finding nature is going to separate them forever. And so I'll step out of eternity... And I will take on their venom. And I will, who knows no sin, I will become sin for them. And Christ on the cross, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, He who knew no sin became sin, and our sin fell on Him. Destroying Him. So that we can have what? 
life. So that's the hope of the gospel for all of us in this room who are fault finders. The only hope we have is this table that we're about to come to that reminds us of the blood and the body that was broken and poured out that took on the toxins that embraced all the fullness of sin that bore it for us. We come and we, we drink and we remember. and we, Guys, this cannot be ritual. This cannot be just a memorial. We come, this is the moment. Everything else is just clutter, man. This is the moment and we remember the body and the blood that was broken for us. So as believers... Number one, here's the encouragement in the gospel. Your fault-finding nature is covered. But, (laughs) in the gospel, we're also free to recognize it and to stop fault-finding. We're free to war for righteousness. We're free to war towards holiness. So stop. Just stop. Troy, that's easier said than done. Amen. Let's pray. (laughs) Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you for two verses that are incredibly power-packed. God, I know the ways that this passage has hit me all week long. And so now, as, as our church embraces it as a whole and as we chew on it, And I pray for however this hits each individual. What conversation it's been about that coworker, what conversation it's been about that situation, what conversation it's been about that family member, what conversation it's been between family members, what conversation, it's just endless. And so God, I pray as we examine our own hearts and how this passage lands on us, that you'll purify your bride at safe haven, that we will not be marked as fault finders, but will model the life-giving gospel that we've received. That you look at us and find no fault and call us righteous saints. And because of the grace we've received, we'll just shut our mouths sometimes. And give grace to other people. Lord, use us to boast in your glory all over Tuscaloosa and beyond. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.